Thank you for joining us for the second in a series of podcasts presented by Smack Gallery, featuring our artists in conversation with writers, collectors, curators, and peers. In this episode, Brooke Andrew, artistic director of the 22nd Biennale of Sydney, has a conversation with Lola and Mira about their installations at Kukatu Island, as well as the Art Gallery of New South Wales, or part of the Biennale. Hello, Lola. Brooke. <laughs> Hello. It's really great to see you. Um, yeah. It's been some time. I think when we saw each other last in Sydney, it was last year. And of course, you've um, been very busy recently. Yes, uh, we've been we've been quite busy. And, you know, it's also nice to see you, even though it's on the screen. Um, yeah, it is a very emotional moment, I suppose, for both of us to see each other after we haven't been able to connect the way we'd like to because we've both been busy and we have just had a baby and we're adjusting to being mothers in our plurality and what that means. So yeah, we've been busy. And of course, making the work for Niren that, that, took, that took up a very interesting time and how the work was, um, what was happening during the work preparation was also very interesting for us, yeah. Yeah, I mean the work is um it's so uh, beautiful and important. And I remember when you f- first came out to Sydney, uh, I think it was during March two thousand and nineteen, around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you know you met other artists, uh, and Nicholas Galanum was there at the same time, um, as, as as well as um, I think Joelle was there as well, um, and. Yes. It ended up being this really fantastic conversation around healing um, and also you were drawn to a few different sites like Cockatoo Island and then also mm-hmm. the Art Gallery of New South Wales later in our conversations because we've been in contact quite a lot. Mm-hmm. The way in which that your work is performative but it also can speak and be amongst other artworks, etc. And um, maybe we could start with a little bit about uh, the work at at Cockatoo Island, maybe, because I just know that you worked with your mother and, and other collaborators as well. So do I, do you want to ask a specific question or? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that, you know, that it was very important. The salt is very important in your, in your work around cleansing and also the beadwork and the water. And you know, often you, you've kind of used different, kinds of liquids as well but when you're at Cockatoo Island and the importance of the site there's a historical site but an Aboriginal site you really wanted to kind of reflect on kind of local customs as well around the way in which that salt water is used for cleansing and I know that the work that you did in uh in Brazil for this Brazil for the Sao Paulo Biennale it was about the cleansing of the feet of Indigenous people so you've always had this kind of connection to land to place but also mm-hmm. collaboration and ceremony. And I'm just wondering, you know, in regards to those things and how they come together, your own personal journey is around healing, it's around cleansing. And how was that in regards to the process of making this work? Um, so our, our process is guided by the wound. Um, we ask ourselves, when we're invited anywhere, you know, we ask ourselves, why have we been called to a particular place? Um, what, what is it that we're supposed to be, be seeing? And so we never think of like, oh, what work will we do? We ask like, why have we been called? And um, what are we answering the call to? 
And that's the first instance of engaging with any space and listening to, to where we've been called and what we're being asked to do. And because our work stems, our, when we're gesturing for healing, we first look at the wound, we ask questions around where does it hurt? Why does it hurt? How does it continue to hurt? Why is it hurting? And for us, we're looking at healing not as just, oh, we need to heal, but we can't heal what we don't know. And when so, for instance, people will speak of a colonial wound. And what, what, what do we even mean when we say colonial wound? What do we mean when we say a slavery wound or um, in a South African context, an apartheid wound? We need to be um, detailed and specific and go deeper into like, what is the woundedness we're talking about? And so in our work, as we are being invited in other places outside of South Africa, where there's been um, colonialism, there's been slavery, we started realizing that there has been a, a forced migration, of course, through slavery of a lot of black people and black bodies. And you'd find that in those places, you know, because of colonialism, the indigenous people, um, the indigenousness of the land has been completely wiped off through genocide. And so we're all speaking about being black and being black and being people of color and being brown people without really speaking or thinking about, you know, the indigenous, indigenousness of the place. And so this is where we start thinking that what is the indigenous knowledge of this place? What is the indigenous spirit of this place? Um, and that we cannot really speak about, for instance, if, you know, in the work in Brazil, we couldn't speak about black people before we speak about indigenous people, because the first genocide in any place where there has been slaves, people who were enslaved, Africans that were enslaved, brought to a place, the first wound there is the indigenous people. The wound of the land, you know, is the wound of the indigenous. The wound of the water is the wound of those who were enslaved and brought to the, to the place. And so our work starts looking at the wound from that place. And this is why we're constantly working with water and land and water and land and water and land. But the questions are never, you know, um, the same questions we ask. We, we sit and listen. The questions of, you know, in relation to healing comes from listening to the place. Um, so the salt, you know, salt has healing properties, um, especially sea salt. And the feet are such an important um, part of, of how we align and connect and how things enter, be it good energy or negative energy. And so by asking people who witness our work to stand on the salt, you know, is, all, is almost saying that like, we are gesturing for you to find your, your moment of healing, your, your, you know, not just moment, but like that, that property, that thing that you can connect with, that can open up your portal and you can begin your own journey of healing. Because we can't prescribe what healing is for people. We can only gesture for it by putting, putting things in place that could assist them to their own healing, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. And because we work with, you know, we don't make this work alone. We work with a collective of women and the, the leading woman in, in our work is, is our mother who then invites other, you know, um, women from our community, black women from our community to sit and, and be. And being is quite meditative, you know, and there are stories that we share amongst each other, um, indigenous stories and indigenous knowledge. And for us, this is an important aspect where we have been, 
you know, socialized in very Western norms and Western ways of being. And so having and creating a, and, and creating a moment where we're sitting and having an intergenerational conversation um, amongst women is a very important moment of healing, right? Like when we take um, a journey to heal ourselves, we heal our ancestors. And this for, for us is a very, very important um, aspect of our, of our practice of creating an intergenerational space where intergenerational conversations can happen and see what, you know, what's, what is sparked out of that. Mm. I mean, what we're looking at here at Cockatoo Island, it's their portals, as you call them, uh, and they're, they're different colours, and there's also um, two candles, uh, and, a, and, and, some, you know, and, a, and under the portals there, there's uh, sea salt, which the person stands on with their bare feet, and also there's um, six bottles of, of, of water, salt water. And I'm just wondering if you could describe that installation physically for people. Yeah, so um, the first one is made out of um, earth gold beads um, that are attached to a circular wooden board. There are about four to 500 um, strings of beads per portal, per pilisa, mm -hmm. and they are suspended on top of a bed of sea salt. And then around that particular constellation is bottles of uh, seawater. And when you enter into the police, you have to take off your shoes and stand with your naked feet. And then you'll be showered by a, a sound, um, a, a song by Nina Simone and a song by Msaik. And Msaik is a South African young musician. And both songs are about, they speak about water. And we chose these particular songs to, to sort of um, enhance the space, the portal, to sort of suggest to, to those who witness and enter and engage with the work to be like water, you mm. know, to be, to flow like water, to, to be the rivers, to be the ocean. And hopefully that, that, that imagination of allowing your, your very constructed physical body to flow like that um, creates a moment for, for, the, for the witness to, to gesture for healing. Mm. So that's the, that's the constellation. And then we have um, seven of them. So the first one is gold, and then we've got two white ones, then two red ones, and then two blue ones, um, royal blue ones. Um, yeah, and each, each, each color, you know, if we're making the, the portal with white beads, the, the wooden board will be white, and so on and so forth. And it's quite important, the colors, they all represent, um, represent something in relation to um, spirituality. You know, white stands for opening up the space and crea creating, a, a purifying the space and inviting sort of um, purifying energy into the space. Red is about your ancestral blood, your passion, and also like um, your, to sort of, purify the negative energies that we carry within us. And then the blue ones, the real blue ones are for Abadala, um, our, our ancestors in particular. Mm. So it's, you know, it is a sort of an um, intersectional conversation. Mm. And the gold one is more about the land. It's a conversation with the land. When I was experiencing people taking their shoes off and standing on the salt, I found them in a very meditative space. 
and and you know it was such a gift in a way to have you know your work in the BNL, especially at Cockatoo Island being one of the first sites of British colonial impact in regards to uh, you know not only of course of Aboriginal land um, and yesterday uh, you know we uh, it was 250 years anniversary of you know, Captain Cook claiming Australia for the British uh, uh, monarch mm. the 29th of April. Mm. And, you know, but also Cockatoo Island being uh, a place uh, of, for convicts, for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but also it was a shipbuilding yard, it was a quarry, it was many, many, many things. It has layers and layers of history. And... It's quite an industrial space and to have your portals there and to have this calmness and this healing, I think really transformed the space. And I was just wondering when you were, mm -hmm. I remember we were in conversation about like this, like two different spaces that were next to each other. Um, how did you settle on that? Because it is quite a contrast and, you know, in regards to it not being in a classical uh, white cube space. And we prefer, we do prefer that the work exists in outside, you know, gallery, conventional gallery spaces. Um, one, because Cockatoo Island is a real space with a real history. You know, we are not trying to imagine or bringing um, a particular context. And so because there's all these energies, as you're speaking, as you're saying, there's like, it has, you know, layers and layers. So there's all these energies that one feels before even all the work of the artists are in Cockatoo Island. There's an energy that's present um, on the island. We do prefer our work to sit in what we say is a real space, right? Um, gallery spaces, museum spaces, to a large extent, are um, curated spaces. You know, we curate a particular environment. But to put a work in a real space that carries... Um, a real history that continues in some in some ways in our contemporary everyday, our everyday lived experience is an important aspect for our work. Um, to do the work, to be able to do the work um, beyond uh, uh, the physicality of the space, it's important that it exists in a space like Cockatoo Island. And you know, when we were in when we were there the last time and we were walking around, we were sensing all these different energies, you know, and you know, people who pass away or who die or who are killed in spaces that is not home, in spaces where they feel oppressed, in spaces where um, their, their bodies are not free, their souls are ne ne never really rest. And so much of the energies we're feeling around Cockatoo Island with these restless energies, you know, sort of asking, like, we want to go home. And we were wondering a lot, you know, we, we don't, of course, know the full extent of, um, of Cockatoo Island, the history, but we're constantly wondering about what has been done here to, to, to cleanse the spirits, what has been done here to, to remind the, the, the spirits that are there that we acknowledge you, we know, we hear your pain, we're aware of what happened here, what has been done to say, we are preparing for you to go home, you know, um, who are these people? What are their names? You know, you know, their names, names, the names that were given at home and the names they, they acquired while they were there because those become, naming becomes a very important aspect in such cases. Um, and so it became important then to, because you, you remember we wanted to do this huge Pilisa 
um, where everyone, you know, if we were there, it would have been a different, but because we couldn't there, we had to think of ways of like, how do we really um, create a space of going in, you know, requiring people to really go in. And because of the can't assist in guiding that and creating a space and molding the space. So we needed the work to mold the space itself. We needed the work to invite people to, to enter. Because when, they, when the, the artist or creator of something is not there, it's quite, it can be nerve wracking and intimidating too, because you don't know what this thing is. So we're like, how do we construct a space, you know, that can hold the space? You know, that can, how do we create a space of care when we are not physically there? How do we create a space that, you know, gestures for a healing? How, and, and, and so the seven portals became um, our response to it or what we were shown that we create those portals and we put them in a way that people feel that they can engage with them. And the idea of Upilisa really, and you know, Upilisa means to heal, uh, um, is that we, we are not in charge um, as the makers of the objects, we are not in charge of what happens really to the, the person that goes in. But the, the, the idea or the gesture is that you enter into Upilisa and as you're standing there on the bed of sea salt, you know, you close your eyes, you're showered by the sound and then hopefully, you know, you open your own internal portal and align with yourself and align with your ancestors and that conversation because we are really removed from ourselves. You know, um, the history of colonialism, the history of oppression um, and slavery, at the core of it was denying ourselves ourselves. We have been denied who we are. We have been denied to love ourselves. And so Pilisa is really about that, to go into that one of like, you have lived a life generationally of being denied, denied love, love of self, love of people who look like you. And so it's, it's, it's a gesture of saying, maybe we can raise ourselves and raise our kids, not out of, you know, colonial fear or decolonizing, but actually from indigenous love. You know, what happens if we raise our kids from a place of indigenous love and that we start talking about ourselves, ourselves not from a colonial violence or slavery, or, but from an indigenous place? Because if, we, if we're all still here, right, we're all still here, it means that there's, there's something that has allowed, there's a magic that has allowed us to suppress the violence, to exist through the violence, through the wound. And that, you know, means that our ancestors have passed on something about being here, not only about resilience and survival, but about being alive. And, you know, these are all the gestures, you know, that Lisa makes. It's like we gesture for being alive and not just surviving. And what does it mean for a Black person, a brown person, an Indigenous person to be alive? Mm -hmm. What does it mean when you're saying we're negotiating ways of living rather than negotiating ways of dying? And so these are some of the gestures, you know, Mm. Yeah, with Upilisa. Yeah, I mean, and, and with that, I mean, really, you're talking about intergenerational trauma, but maybe you're shifting that too to say, well, let's have, let's try and enhance inter intergenerational not only healing but maybe joy. Is that something that enters? You know, like because often colonial violence, when it enters the body, and it is generational, and it is a proven fact now, scientific as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's often 
some, some, I mean, me being Wiradjuri Celtic myself, I know that even within my Indigenous family, to be happy and joyful is sometimes, for some of my family, is to be ashamed of that or even like you know to go to university for some members it's you're ashamed to because you're kind of succeeding or you're happy and and but to get to that happiness and that healing and that joy you're actually breaking cycles so is that something also Mm -hmm. feeding into what you're saying yes it is definitely you know the moment you we are speaking about being alive you know, the moment we're speaking about negotiating ways of living rather than, because if anything, black bodies, brown bodies, you know, I'm, and I'm, we are using the word bodies because that's when we're, we have been accomplished to reducing ourselves to that and not people where we are also accomplices in our own dehumanization, right? When you say, oh, black bodies and brown bodies. So I'm very, we are very specific in using these terms to show the, how trauma and, and, you know, intergenerational trauma and intergenerational violence exist as a lived experience of the everyday. Mm-hmm. Because we start to become these words. We, we start to see our bodies only, ourselves only through violence. And our work is saying, well, yes, there's a woundedness and we cannot just, be, you know, heal. We have to go through the wound. But in that, how about we also look at how joy can do that, happiness? Mm-hmm. How about we can look at other ways of healing the wound? We acknowledge the wound. We open it up. We're like, here it is. This is why it hurts. This is where it hurts. But, you know, how do we then work through the wound? And the work really is about that. Like, it's an important aspect to, you know, because these are all things when you're denied love, when you're denied yourself, you're denied joy, happiness, respect, responsibility. You're denied all of these things. Mm. And so when we speak about indigenous love, to raise ourselves, because we are, we, we are people that have not been raised by ourselves, by our mothers. We have been raised by systems. You know, we've been raised by systems, systems that, that perpetually know how to kill us. And so to say to that, to say, not to say to that, not as a counter argument, to say, we are going to raise ourselves from an indigenous loving place. It's not a response or a, a reaction to colonial processes or slavery. It, it is our right to feel that we can raise ourselves from that, to claim ourselves. And we are very careful of never to say reclaiming, repositioning. You know, so it's like to claim ourselves for ourselves, to position ourselves for ourselves. And that means to be okay, to feel joy and express joy, to be okay, to feel love, intimacy, to rest our bodies as black people, as brown people, as indigenous people need rest. We've been fighting. We've been in turmoil for such a long time. We've been violated. We've been seen as violence. We've been dehumanized. We've been made invisible. We've been made hyper-visible. Our Mm. bodies need rest. Mm. I mean, and this still continues today, doesn't it? I mean, there's kind of this depiction, these stereotypes, but I think it's very generous too because through your own um, perspective of this healing and resting and and going through the wound, you're inviting all people to to stay and to to heal. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's important, you know, if, if you have lived a life um, like 
black people, indigenous people and brown people where your entire existence is based on how you might die and dying. Like that's the, that's the core of it, like death, you know, that you're constantly negotiating ways of dying and whether that's social death, whether that's economic death, whether that's like physical death or spiritual death, which is, you know, we are raised into a space of spiritual death because we are denied who we are. Living, being alive is an important thing. Mm. And determining how to live and how to be alive is an important thing. This is why we speak about radical Black self-love, radical Indigenous self-love. These are important terminologies of really, not reinstating, instating yourself. You know, it's just like, I see myself fully. Mm. Because that allows you, when you see yourself fully, it allows you to see others who look like you in their fullness. You know, because what, when we, we've been doing sort of our work for the last over 10 years, and in, in, I think we think maybe five or six years ago, what we realized is that the, when we only speak from a colonial and slavery perspective, we speak of ourselves from a place of lack. Mm. And, you know, and for us, that was like such a deep-seated woundedness of like, you know, we, this lack, yeah. this deep-seated intergenerational lack and lack because we are traumatized, you know. Every time you go, go to a seminar and listen, our bodies are only read through trauma. And we're like, are you saying that at no point did we exercise and experience and practice joyfulness? You know, whether it's just like dressing up in a particular way in your indigenous clothes, in whatever, white t-shirt and jeans, whatever, like, are you saying our bodies here for over 2,000 years have never existed in a place where we created our own joy, our own happiness, that those things are only seen as part of resilience and resistance? Surely not. Yeah. Surely not. Surely it could also exist in its own freedom. But of course, it's difficult to, to sit in that space. Because I'm, and to be very clear, we're not speaking of these spaces as utopian. These are not utopian spaces. It's not this idea for utopia. It's just like, no. To exist in a loving space is, is not to create a utopian space. It's, we need to exist in a loving space because we deserve that. It's our birthright. And this is what we've been denied. Being denied yourself is being denied to exist in a loving space, yeah. period. Yeah. So the work, um, yeah, and that, those are the kind of woundedness we work through. And of course, they're quite, you know, social, political and socioeconomic and sociocultural. Yeah. So the body is really such a, 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 an important empowering a vessel, really, and you're empowering this vessel and, and sharing that process. Uh, the work that you have at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, um, the, your soldiers, uh, this is in the old court galleries. The Art Gallery of New South Wales is the first uh, art gallery built in the British colony in Australian Sydney. And the old court galleries has always traditionally been for painting, uh, British painters, Australian painters, mm. European painters, often of landscape, of course. And one of the main aims of Newton was to create an intervention of different artworks uh, into these spaces to really kind of shift the narrative uh, of the empire and the kind of colonial discourse 
which really does feed into a lot of things that you've been talking about of often the absence of Indigenous and brown and black bodies of those histories that are incredibly traumatising uh, for many of us. And in this work, apart from uh, your work of the, the soldiers there, um, we also have uh, Mustafa Machua, who's a Zimbabwean painter, just on the bottom right hand mm. corner here. We have um, Joelle Andrew and Amorosa's work here, a Madagascan artist, and also the kind of archive of Kumara um, Mike Williams here, who's a, a passed away now, but is a very important Pitanjara uh, land rights leader. And his widow Tapian community collaborated with the Biennale. But the wonderful thing about this is that these works all sit um, uh, along, uh, you know, in a kind of a unison, really, to kind of together. I mean, there are mm -hmm. like five court galleries, but I'm just wondering if you could um, maybe describe the different uh, coloured soldiers, like one is the Mboni or the Seer, and then you have the, is it Mkweseli? Mkweseli, yes. Yeah. And then, yes. yeah. And uh, Omfandasasi, is it? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The soldiers, you know, which yeah, they are. are a yes, they are made out of plastic, and they are. We've used our own body as the model. Um, in creating multiple selves in our plurality that journeys with us. And when we were shown to make these soldiers, uh, we were asked to make an army. Yeah. So it's a long work. We still continue to produce these soldiers. To create this army, um, you know, a battalion of army, to respond also, not really to respond, but to look into and investigate uh, the history of violence, but also the history of um, healers, mm. um, indigenous healers in particular. Uh, so what we're looking and at... What, mm -hmm? I'm sorry, I was just wondering, just so, so what we're looking at here is that there's a vitrine in, in, one, in one of the spaces next to the artworks we described, and there's a, a bed of salt, and then the figures are sitting on the, on the salt or kind of... Yeah. And the, the black. Yeah, I was in at the, they're about, I think, for about four centi five centimeters high, I think. Yes. Is that about? Maybe. Yeah. Well, and I was just wondering um, if you could describe maybe the, the different, like the black, the red, and, and the gold um, portraits. Yeah. 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 So the, the black soldiers, which are called um, the protector are about, you know, healers, particularly um, feminine healers, um, femme healers, um, intersectional women healers who have been protecting, um, protecting us for a very long time. These are invisible people that we don't know, that are not part of the um, histories that we learn about. They're not part of the, the when, in any post-reality um, country when it's like, oh, it's post-apartheid, post-colonialism, post-slavery. These are the women, the names of the women that we'll never hear about. 
when they talk about nation building, because in nation building, there's a lot of um, sort of collective amnesia that is enforced on people where there are certain people who are never mentioned, will never know. But it's, at the same time, these are our mothers, our aunts, our sisters, those who protected us um, without carrying really guns. As you can see, we are standing here it seems like we're carrying a gun, but we're, what we're actually carrying is umsimbiti, which is an ancestral stick that, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, is symbolic of like, we are seeing ourselves in the plurality and we, our work is not in, you know, is intersectional in time. It's, it's working through the past, the present and the future. These women function in that way. You know, there are, you know, intersectional protectors and their role and you know, they will never, we'll never know their names. Their mm. names will never be mentioned. Mm. Yeah. And then we have the red ones that are in a sitting position um, with their hands on their knees, uh, holding umsimbiti, and they are praying. They are the, they are the, the, the intersectional women who are on constant prayer, you know, who are always looking for the medicine you know, who are always out there looking for the medicine, who are investigating the wound and looking at the wound and trying to find the medicine. And that's their work, you know, they, and this is why we call them, um, they are in that position as well, you know. They, they're space holders. They hold the space um, with all their capacity and they understand that they cannot do it as individuals. They need a collective. And so they're constantly praying in between the past, the present and the future, always praying and holding space and praying and praying, looking for medicine, looking for ways of healing. Mm -hmm. um, and which is an, you know, uh, one of the important um, soldiers in our practice. And there's much more of these, these women, the women that you know, pray and look for medicine. Mm -hmm. And then we have the gold soldiers that are standing up straight, looking ahead, and they're the seers, um, and their role is to, to open the path for us to go forward. They're always looking ahead and finding ways of how do we move forward? How do we um, imagine and manifest ourselves into the future? What do we need to do? You know, what do we need to clear? So they clear the pathway as well. They're constantly clearing the pathway. So if you look at the, the soldiers, you know, as a battalion of soldiers, you know, we have your protector, you have your space holder, you have your seer. They're working together through the wound. They're working together through the trauma, the intergenerational trauma. And they're working, always working in an intersectional um, perspective of time, the past, the present and the future. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it was just really powerful to, uh, you know, to experience uh, you know the, you know those soldiers, especially in that colonial gallery space, it really shifted, you know, uh, the way in which people really came across the work. I mean, um, Rosanna Paulino, the Brazilian, you know, artist, mm -hmm. you know, had very powerful representations of women in her own, you know, Afro-Brazilian culture of the the woman as the bull with the horns, but really empowering. And mm -hmm. the Renaissance paintings, and and your soldiers. Lola, you know, we're, we're next to those kind of those landscapes, you know, those kind of, you know, kind of, you know, very early uh, depictions of uh, Australia and New Zealand uh, that were yeah. really very romantic 
Um, mm. So that was a very, you know, the, the soldiers are really holding their place. They're really shifting yeah. the energies of that space. Yeah. Mm. And also one of the questions that people always ask us is why we've decided to make them so small and why don't we make um, these huge monuments of ourselves? And we always say, you know, it's monuments are everywhere. That's one of the colonial um, aftermath we have, you know, this monuments in public spaces that override our presence. Um, monuments in public spaces that override our historical narrative and completely erase it. You know, these huge monuments of these men on horses, these men, you know, who look over us, who look above us, who can, you know, with their stature, you know, suppress who we are, compress who we are and remind us in a in a, in a public space and constantly violating our public spaces, remind us in a public space that like, we are here and we, we've been here and we'll continue to be here and you cannot surmount to anything. And the reason of, you know, um, having the soldiers in, in that is because spiritual work, ancestral work does not, you know, create this dominance over people, you know, over space of land, it's, it works together with land, it works together with nature. It's not about overriding, it's really understanding that we're part of this um, ecosystem that we're not above, you know, we're not above anything. And because we are born and we die, we have to respect that. You know, this, the idea of these monuments is that, you know, they're remembered forever, they live forever, and we see them forever and like glorified and sort of immortalize themselves. I mean, like, but we, we are born and we die and we have the life in between and we have to respect that as a call of nature. You know, how we will be remembered is through the oral when people talk about us where we are doing, that's how we'll be remembered and celebrated. This, this huge, you know, presence that keeps on, you know, hitting people is unnecessary. Mm. And, and, the idea is that those soldiers one day might not even exist. Someone might decide to mount them, you know, they, they do, you know, do you understand? It's like, it's not to create this thing that's everlasting because we are not here as, as beings to be everlasting. You know, we are here now and our presence and our continued presence will be through our, our daughters, our sons, you know, non-binary, like, it will continue to be here in other forms and other ways. We do not need to immortalize our beings at all. Um, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if people are always happy with that because the idea of like creating this thing that is not, you know, um, I guess is important to people to counter, and I understand it to, to counter these uh, public monuments. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, but our, our, our approach is there are other ways. And ideally, all should be demolished. Yeah, I and mean, it's it's quite interesting. You're talking about these expectations of the monument, and then demolishing it. Because what I see that you're doing is you're actually inverting not only space, but you're inverting the way in which legacies are, or the way in which that we look at ourselves and mortality and spirit. Uh, and if we if we kind of reflect a little bit about 
the beginning of the conversation was very much about colonialism and how we push past that violence to and through the wound. Uh, imagine if, as you say, demolishing these statues, imagine if I can reflect on places in Sydney, if there was no Queen Victoria statues, if there was no Captain Cook statues, if there were no yeah. statues to kind of remind people and also new Australians who come to these lands and don't understand Indigenous histories, people who don't understand the ways in which that we're looking constantly at monuments that represent a very particular monarchy from somewhere else that comes with a, a lot of baggage and it's not disparaging towards that, but it actually doesn't, it's, it kind of clouds the vision of history and narrative and spirituality um, where it takes it, well, I think just listening to it takes it away from my own Indigenous body into transposes it onto a colonial methodology and a body. And, and for yeah. you to have, you know, you say that, you know, the monuments in a way really they're spiritual figures and you're creating. Yeah, they are. They are. And this is what, you know, I suppose we, we already know it's just like a, a monument is the same, is a, has a similar effect as a billboard. You know, a billboard of whatever product it's put somewhere, you know, creates an energy constantly like it's giving off this energy. And that space, you know, is morphed and, and create and, and sort of um, realized through this energy. Mm. And this is, you know, I mean, it, to all it's, it's, you know, in advertising, this is what advertising and marketing understood long time ago. To own the images, to own the people. You own the image, you own the people. Because image, visuals, aesthetic is so important and so powerful and the energy they give and transmit. And this is why monuments are dangerous. Mm. Because one, it's a biased history, um, a very violent history. Most of the time these monuments are of violators, oppressors, people who have come and colonized and enslaved that are put... and. So if we're raising our kids right now, when we're looking and we're standing in front of a monument, what do I say to my daughter right now? What do we say to our daughter right now? We're standing in front of a, you know, a colonial mon monument of, I don't know, Rhodes, for instance, who is looking down on us as black people reduced to black bodies. How, do I, how do we say, you matter in this place, you are of this place and this place is yours as much as it is anyone else's. When you have a, a monument of someone who was highly and deliberately violent, not only to the people, but to the land. And this is why, you know, you know and because they're spiritual energies that continue to exist in this place, being immortalized, through very expensive, you know, natural resources sometimes, you know, like whatever material they've used to, to make the statue. Mm. And so, yeah. And it's interesting you, you raise this because, of course, the um, decapitation or the kind of destruction or the politics and 
movements around the removal of sculptures, especially the Rhodes statue in, in, in Africa. Many of them were removed. I know that at Oxford University, uh, there was a lot of discussion about the removal of the Rhodes statue there. And they, I think, decided to keep it as a memorialization of the fact that it should be removed. Um, but these are, you know, these are histories um, that make it very complicated, I suppose, to for people to understand the kinds of healing and the extensive healing or, or, or working through those wounds. And you said something very interesting before about like a counter. What is the counter? So, for example, what is the counter monument? So in some ways, you know, I see that, you know, the, those sculptural pieces with that healing space, that spiritual space that you created in the old court galleries as a kind of a, a counter um, moment because it's many things mm. it's many things. Yes. yeah mm. I mean yeah I mean monuments are because you know even the conversations around monuments that have been happening are happening between people who are privileged to have those kind of conversations and not the people who are affected by these monuments right like who's who has the deciding power to say a particular statue can continue to exist in a particular public space well, especially you that, know, it's, and, uh, yeah, I mean, especially that, you know, for Indigenous people and um, I'm sure that in your homelands too, we have already monuments which are, for example, there are birthing trees which are hundreds of years old in Victoria and there's been yeah. an ongoing battle with the government to, the government want to tear down these trees to create a highway. And, but these are actually... In, in, like ancient monuments compared to many of the other. Exactly. And, and so these healing spaces that you've created, both at Cockatoo Island and also at the Art Gallery in New South Wales, are really metaphors for those spiritual portals or spaces that either exist in physical form in trees or in rocks or in those places um, without actually having, I suppose, the, um, the power to maybe intimidate as well or the power to yeah. um they coexist we you know they create a space where we are part of the part of the ecosystem it doesn't disrupt us it doesn't you know make our life difficult it doesn't um infringe on our freedom right and this this these are the important things to, to consider um yeah mm. So, Lola, I just wanted to ask you, I know that you're, um, you know, that you are having uh, a, a reprieve at the moment and kind of a break, but, I mean, are you also reflecting on, on, on uh, I don't know, on poetry or poems or thoughts or ideas or has it been a space for you to kind of reflect as well? Right now, mm. this moment? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean... The being being on the lockdown, you mean? Well, I mean, even especially after um, so much has been going on in the world at the moment, mm. we talk about healing spaces and and yeah, mm. I suppose the lockdown. I mean, the way yeah. for me, I'm finding it really quite um, energizing, even though of course there are terrible things happening around around mm. the world at the moment. Yeah, for us, we've seen it as a. You know, a lot of people right now, like, so we need to be productive. We need to make, we need to make, we need to, which is understandable. What we have understood is that like, when we all panic in different ways, some people panic by being productive. Some people panic by being still. 
Some people panic by having like mental breakdowns and, and for us, these are all questions of what kind of world have we created that, you know, these are our responses when we are finding ourselves in a pandemic in, in, in this current moment when we have been looking at it as a mirror, like what, what is this mirror saying, you know, like, and it's been an, in a South African context and I'm sure in other places in Africa, it's been an ugly mirror because suddenly we are seeing our politicians and our governments responding to, to poverty in a very particular way. In a South African context, what has been um, very traumatizing or re-traumatizing for many South Africans, ourselves included, is that a few years, of, a few, maybe 20 years or, yeah, 20, 30 years ago, HIV came and a lot of our parents were wiped out by HIV. And so a lot of people who were born in the 80s were being raised by their grandparents who are now um, the most fragile because of this pandemic. You know, so to to be standing in a position where to watch again um, uh, another virus wipe had the potential to wipe out the people that raised us is very is is yeah it's it's um it it one for for us in you know in our plural existence makes us aware of our insignificance you know like we are great as human beings but we are also insignificant and I think. This moment is make, you know, shaking all humanity as we know it. You know, that we think we're all these, you know, omnipresent, um, huge beings, you know, who are complete and packaged, but we are not. We're in a state of constant becoming and we have forgotten that we're constantly having to remodel ourselves to the conditions of nature and nature now. And the, the earth is asking us to stop and look. And the images that we've been seeing is not pretty. They're not beautiful. What we have created as, as humankind is just devastating. Because if you remember, if you properly, we didn't just get to this pandemic, right? There has been fires all around the world that have burned down um, indigenous plantations. Animals have died. You know, indigenous people have been pushed off again from their centrality. So this is, you know, we didn't just get here. You know, we didn't just get to this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, you know, somehow the, the, the politics around, you know, how the virus was created and how it escaped and, and all of that. But with that even said, we didn't just get to this moment of having to stay indoors and being on lockdown. Mm-hmm. There are a series of events that were happening that have been happening for the last 10 years that led us here. Mm. And now we're all having to take stock, but the way that we've been responding, we've only been responding to this particular pandemic and not responding to the root of our situation and our reality in that one, we've been killing earth. We've been killing earth. We've been killing earth and this is the root of the problem. And we haven't been able um, to actually really respond to that. And even with this pandemic, when we are forced to actually sit down and think and observe and really work in a much more lateral and, and parallel way, we're still working in a very linear perspective. We're just looking at 
the virus and the pandemic. And, you know, and everyone is responding to this pandemic and like, how are we going to change our careers and how are we going to da da da, da but how are we going to change this or that? And it's just like a reaction to this, this, this small window that actually is saying like, can you open your eyes wider? We have a bigger problem here and we've, ha- we've been sitting on it for a very long time. And now earth is forcing us with a deadly virus that is violating our humanity, that is exposing us to the cruelty of, who, of the systems we've built, that like so many people are poor that they need, you know, food parcels. So many people live hand to mouth and when they don't work, they don't eat. So many people are not only negotiating, you know, dying from the virus, they're negotiating dying between, because they can't eat or they're gonna die from the virus. Either way, Mm. they're negotiating death. That's the systems that we've created as people. Mm-hmm. And we were having conversations with other, with other artists and we we're saying like, you know, we, it's indigenous knowledge that might save us, indigenous ways of being and like really having to realign ourselves with nature, having to understand that, you know, as the Aboriginal says, like, you know, you know, the earth does not belong to us, we belong to earth, you know, and you know, there isn't, I don't, we don't know how else to say it besides that. And so we, we have been sitting really and listening. We, we're not responding to anything. We're not acting to anything because we haven't even, we don't feel like we, we grasp this reality, you know, in its entirety. We haven't grasped it. We, we're still just sitting and like, okay, yeah. where are we? What is actually happening? Yeah. What is required from us? What do we need to do? Not as a reaction to this moment, but what do we need to do in our lives as we continue to live? Mm. Yeah. And so we haven't been making work. We're like a lot of people are making work and are busy and we haven't been able to be in that space because we, we feel we need to listen. We need to listen. And that's what, what we've been doing, listening and, and listening. And we haven't gotten anything to say really to be like, and everything we're saying now is from like, this is our listening. And the listening is like through looking, but we don't have anything to say. This is how we can do this or how we can do that. Or we're just listening, listening. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think that that's, you know, um, exactly what, um, you've, you, you, you've created with the help of your mother and your collaborators with you know the, these healing spaces and with your own journey. And I want to thank you for that. And, uh... Thanks again for listening. Check out our Instagram at smackgallery, Lola Amira at lola.amira and hashtag Niran2020 for more information. The 22nd Sydney Biennale.